Every now and then you get what you might call an asymmetric legal case, where a little guy takes on a really, really, really big guy. And a lot of the time, it goes something like this. Mr. Burns, we've got witnesses, precedent, and a paper trail a mile long. Yes, well, I have ten high-priced blues. <laughs> but every now and then, it doesn't. A climate activist has been given permission to take his fight against some of the country's biggest companies to the Supreme Court. This week, New Zealand's Supreme Court has been hearing a very unusual case, one which could have far-reaching implications. Mike Smith is suing Fonterra, Genesis Energy, New Zealand Steel, Z Energy and others. He alleges they are knowingly contributing to dangerous changes to the climate and wants them forced to produce zero net emissions by 2030. Many legal scholars think this case is unlikely to succeed. But it's a confluence of fascinating questions how tikanga is integrated into our colonial legal system, for example, and how far the courts can actually go in forcing companies to lower their carbon emissions. I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, Business Desk reporter Victoria Young and Victoria University law professor Jeff McClay on the ins and outs of Mike Smith's claim, how the companies in his sites have responded and what the possible implications of this could be going forward. The best way to introduce us maybe to the case is to talk about the guy who's bringing the case, uh, Mike Smith. Tell me a bit about him. Who is he? Well, he's an iwi leader um, of Ngāpui and Kahu. He um, lives up in Northland. He is a climate change spokesperson for the Iwi Chairs Forum, who obviously, you know, care about a lot of Māori issues. But his sort of relevance or standing in this case is that he says he has an interest in land in Northland, which is sort of how he is able to bring the dispute in a way. But he's a climate change activist. My reaction was probably a more conservative one, which is it's not going to work. This is too big a stretch. But perhaps more importantly, there are really big why questions. Why should courts do this? Is it much better for government to do it? Is, are the courts really going to add anything to this process? All of those questions, really. Um, and I still think it's a bit of a big stretch in terms of both doctrine and that why question. Why courts? What can courts add? Can they actually do anything but frustrate what the government is trying to do? Has your opinion of the merits of the case anyway, or, or whether it will succeed, have, have those changed at all over the past couple of years, or has the, has the case become more interesting in your eyes over the past couple of years? I think the case has become more interesting as it's gone through the courts, and I think um, both sides have developed their arguments quite a lot, I suspect. Perhaps the most important question really is, if courts aren't going to do this, to flip what I said before, aren't going to do this, what are they going to do? And I think that was put very well by the by David Salmon QC, who's the lead lawyer for the plaintiffs. You know, what are you here for if you're not here for the biggest crisis of our time? Um, and the lawyers on the other side have, have really been struggling to answer that basic question. I think the judges are really engaged with what their role is and what they ought to be doing about this ex- existential crisis with, that we all face. The government themselves have admitted that the country cannot reduce emissions without business doing their part and without all of us doing their part. And that includes the courts. I was actually in the first hearing of this 
case when it was first in the High Court. Obviously, it's at Supreme Court now, so it's gone through the layers. So in 2020, I was sitting in the I was sitting in the High Court in Auckland, and it was quite um, it was quite interesting because I didn't actually know what the case was about. I just showed up because I saw Fonterra, and that's sort of as a journalist, you think okay. <laughs> Fonterra's in court. Let's go. You know, there were so many lawyers for the defendants because these corporates they're taking it seriously. They're, they're, they're lawyering up. They're not messing about. So they were all there sitting in this quite small, because it's, you know, just the Auckland High Court courtroom. They're all there really early, gazillion files. I'm sitting there just watching, and I'm like, well, who's the actual, who's bringing this claim? And then in walks David Salmon, who, who is now QC. He's kind of a rising star mm. in the lawyer world with just, you know, a satchel. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and his junior. Um, you know, he's got a very strong junior who is really into climate change. And actually, his junior, whose name I've forgotten, but his junior on this case actually heard Davies speak on climate change um, to the Supreme Court, to Justice Swing-Hellman, and then he asked him for a job. Mm. So the, these, are, these are guys who are into... Climate change. They know what the exact yeah, purpose yeah, yeah. is. And Davy has done many, many pro bono cases in this area. But anyway, he walks in, and basically there's nowhere for him to sit, so he sits in the jury box and gives his submissions from there, which is just unorthodox and weird. Jeez. But it just shows this juxtaposition of the big and the small guy, I guess. We have to draw a distinction here between the two main types of law we have here in New Zealand, statute law and common law, or judge-made law. Basically, statute law means the written laws of the land. These are passed by Parliament and they are prescriptive. They lay out what you can and can't do. Common law is made by judges and it sort of fills the gaps left by the statute law. In a way, it's more concerned with applying common sense to the law and making sure that judgments reflect societal changes. An example is, as we'll talk about, negligence. There's no piece of legislation that outlines the parameters of negligence, what is or isn't negligent. And that's probably a good thing, right? You want the idea of negligence to change with the times. There are things we'd consider negligent now that would not have been considered negligent in the 1960s. And we don't want to keep updating our legislation every couple of years to reflect these changing sensibilities. So it makes sense to leave something like this in the hands of judges. Judges are bound to follow other senior judges' previous decisions on similar cases to keep things more or less consistent and predictable. Mike Smith's case is calling on our common law rather than any kind of statute, and it concerns a part of law called torts. Here's Jeff McClay. Torts is the area of civil wrongs. It literally comes from the Norman French, avoir tort, to be wrong. And they're alleging three torts, three wrongs. The first, negligence, which is the common or garden, all-pervasive tort of our times. This is where you make a mistake. You're riding a bike, you don't pay enough attention, you slam into a rich person's car. You're liable in negligence to them in common law. They're also arguing public nuisance, which is one of these old, somewhat fusty torts you find in our textbooks, not very often litigated, to be honest. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a tort where you, you say that, say there's a polluter, in old England cases, a dark satanic mill that is producing um, smuts. 
you breathe the smuts in, they have a particular effect on you. You say that this is a public nuisance and you have a private right of action to prevent that public nuisance. That's been one of the issues in this case is how important this tort was in, in 19th century England to deal with the, the chaos and the destruction of the Industrial Revolution for the environment in England. And the third thing that they're alleging is what we might call now rather snobby legal world an innominate tort, but something that's not been done before. That It's kind of like you might say a Hail Mary pleading. It might not fit negligence, it might not fit public nuisance, but there must be something out there that it fits, and it's very much an invitation for the judges to invent perhaps a more environmentally focused tort or a climate change tort in its own right. At the High Court stage, he failed on two, and the judge let the third one through. Mm-hmm. And you know, by, when I say let it through, he didn't say, yes, this is the law, but he said, oh, that could be argued at trial. So it is, we're still very, very early steps here, I have to emphasize. Sure. The Court of Appeal was just like, hell no. Yeah. They, you know, there was no minority, it was a full court, and they just said, this is just too hard, and this is what the government should be doing, and this isn't even, it's not, they didn't, they didn't even say it's our government, it's, they said it a coordinated international response is needed to mm. do this, and it's just not where we can go. Yeah. So it was pretty yeah, definitive. But they gave leave for him to appeal, because like, that's how it works, like the Court of Appeal mm, has to give mm. you leave to appeal to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Why would they do that? I think a case like this, I mean, the sort of test that they apply is, is it in the interest of justice? So, I mean, it's pretty broad. Mm. They can, yeah, for, for, for a case like this where there is public interest, I think it was, it was always going to go to the Supreme Court. It, it just needed to be tested in that way. So what what is it that is so interesting about this case? I think... The fact that it is a broad claim in which, I mean, the first the first part of the hearing, which I watched on Monday, was a lot about who are the defendants. I mean, who who are you going to get for the damage caused you by climate change? I mean, <laughs> Justice Wink Hellman said, you know, well, we're, we're all emitters in our own way, right? Yeah. You know, one of the judges, uh, Stephen Koch, was like, well, I've got a, I've got a um, Land Rover, mm. you know, as well as an electric car, he pointed out. <laughs> But, you know, he said, oh, I've got to, you know, sue me, you know, why don't you sue me? So, you know, how big do you want to go? This is this is the thing. Can courts draw lines around this massive issue, which in so many areas and facets of life people find unthreatening in a way? You know what I mean? I mean, that, that, that's the thing about climate change in general, isn't it? People know that it's happening, but not necessarily enough to change their behaviours yeah. about it because there aren't certain lines drawn. And that's that's the big issue with climate change more generally is it's not a it's not it's in a way it's not a visible threat. It moves like a glacier, right? Eh? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and Justice Joe Williams he said he said, Well, where's my line? Because you can show me all these numbers on a whiteboard, but he was sort of saying to me it's not it's not real, you yeah. know, and th- they were really pushing this in court because you know, Davy Salmon, who acts for Mike Smith, he was saying, "Yeah, there is a problem here because, for example, there are when you when you drive the kids to school, there's a lot of SUVs, right? And people know that they're bad for the environment, but the the more immediate threat that they see to themselves and their family is not having a safe car. Yeah, and that's that's the issue. That's the logic between buying one when you live in Ponsonby. Yeah, yeah. Um, those kind of issues. It's this is quite a meaty case. All of those sorts of issues are being teased out.
this creation of a new tort, that's essentially what uh, Mike Smith is asking for, yes? Like, if the court decides that it doesn't fit either of the previous alleged um, breaches of torts, he, he wants a new one to, to be created, essentially, yeah. is that... And we don't like doing that. So one of the mm. problems with our, our, our system is that the judges invent the law, but judges are always cognizant of the fact that they don't really have much democratic legitimacy to just invent things. So they are very based on what's been done before. The law of precedent, some people have heard the fancy phrase stare decisis in America, that you can't keep on, you just can't do whatever you like as a judge. You can only do what has already been done and maybe to a little bit more. So the way our law goes forward is... There might be a, a change of effect situation. You might push the doctrine just a little bit further, whereas this is like a, a tsunami, if you like. Just a, everything is being changed all at once, and that's something that judges are very wary, wary of, and I'm certainly something that the defendants have made something of in the in the court the last couple of days. This is just too much. We're changing too much doctrine, either for the torts we already have to apply here, or for the new tort. If you ask me, I think it's probably unlikely they're going to get their new tort. I think, as Justice Koch has been saying for the last two days in the Supreme Court, this is really a case about public nuisance. How far can we stretch these cases from 19th century England dealing with not completely foreign material, pollution of the air and of water, and there were some creative responses by English judges back then. The defendants are saying, well, yeah, that was in a particularly narrowly confined um, area. Um, this is the whole world. Um, how does this really fit? And so is Mike Smith's argument pertaining to that, that idea of public nuisance? Essentially, He's essentially saying these seven companies uh, against whom he is uh, taking these, these claims, they are contributing to climate change. And this contribution to climate change is affecting the earth, the world, in such a way that it's compromising people's ability to enjoy their freedom and, and, and sort of do what they like. An example maybe being the rising sea levels might mean that a beach that you'd been going to for 30 years all of a sudden is, is not safe and therefore these companies have contributed to a public nuisance. Is that a, a, a reasonably accurate summary? In a, in a very broad sense, there's a, probably a couple of of difficulties with that case. Okay. The, the first is, and I think this is the most important thing, which has not been as much a focus of the hearing as I would have thought in the Supreme Court, is that even if Fonterra, which is the lead defendant, has been the example being used, were to turn off all of its boilers tomorrow, which have been the example used in court, mm-hmm. unfortunately they're very unlikely going to affect very much of what's going to happen to all of us as a result of climate change. So there's a, there's a basic causation problem here that it would happen even if they turned the boilers all off. And that's one of the issues that he's, I think, was going to have to be confronted in the judgments at least. This, the second issue is that that's the case that I would run as a Pakeha New Zealander, the beaches I enjoy or my house is being flooded. Mike Smith is also representing the Iwi Leaders Forum and in particular representing his hapu and, and Napui in terms of their cultural rights to the areas which they live in in Northland and have lived in for probably a thousand years. Mm. And I think that's one of the key dimensions of this case that you know I think is the big game-breaker that's happened over the last um, 18 months with this case is the transformation from what a case that might have been bought by someone like me to someone perhaps bought like Mike Smith who has much more of a traditional connection to the land that he is worried about losing and the way of life he's worried about losing. He's trying to make a stronger case by saying, I mean, we all know that Māori have a spiritual connection to their land. And he's actually using that to say, you know, this is a, this is a bigger deal for me. It's not, it's not just land as a property right, which sure. I think, when you're talking about colonialism, that 
um, you know, the sort of imported methods of law don't quite recognise, he's saying you need to, you know, you need to bring this in here and understand what it means for me and my whanau. You know, it's the harm is more than, you know, what how you would normally sort of... More than someone stealing your phone or... Yeah, yeah, yeah or like the, prev- the previous cases have been, in, in public nuisance, have been about somebody sort of blocking your way, you're trying to get to the height. Trying to get through a highway—that's nuisance. If you you're blocking someone's way, or later ones have been pollution. But this, this, there is something more to it. And the other thing that we should probably mention is that I need to get the name of the organisation right. But the the Maori Law Society basically has also intervened. So they're also coming in here and saying we're we're important too. And and if you're going to create this law, which will affect more cases, then it, it needs to be heard. You know, we've been using this term tikanga, and I, you know, I think I, I think I kind of get what that means in this context. But the more that I interrogate what I think about it, the less confident I feel. So, I mean, what are we exactly sort of talking about when we, when we discuss the idea of tikanga informing or being a crucial part of common law? Is it the way that? the idea of land and one's relationship to land is thought of. Yeah, so first of all, just the disclaimer that I feel a bit weird sure. sort of doing that because I've got other colleagues who I'd much rather come in and explain explain this case. Well, Natalie Coates would do a much better job, but just to use what she said in court, for example, is you judges, although I think they did understand, and certainly Justice Williams understood this, mm-hmm. you need to understand that the environment is not something that's separate from us in a way that a a European legal system might view land as resources or the beach as a resource. It's part of us. And she made it very clear that Māori whakapapa to the environment in a way that perhaps Pākehā New Zealanders don't, mm. and you can't divorce these things off. So if we have a tort that might be protecting our property interests or might be protecting our financial interests, her argument was, well, that's just too narrow for what needs to happen in Aotearoa New Zealand now, that what we need to do is consider a, a broader worldview where what we're really talking about is protecting the environment in general. And that's what I think she would say tikanga requires here, a, a preservation of the environment. As Mama Wika said for the Māori Lawyers Association, this is a situation where um, we, are, we only are visiting or we're only temporarily here. The environment survived, was here before us and goes on after us. It's our role as guardians of that environment in a way that the European, the argument is that the European legal system or English common law has become more about exploiting or using the environment. In this particular case it might be more focused on the preservation of the environment in general. What remedy is Mike Smith seeking in this case? Essentially, as I understand it, they want injunctions. Injunctions are normally orders by which courts stop behaviour which is infringing somebody else's rights. Now, that's tricky in the climate change, and I think this is one of the strongest parts of the defendant's case, because, in fact, Mr Smith doesn't necessarily want to stop Fonterra from doing its business. It wants Fonterra to do its business in a way which is compatible with net zero. What does that mean? How do we go about assessing it? What are the mechanisms for assessing whether we've got that right? And those are the issues that are really problematic, I suspect, for the court in terms of its institutional role. New Zealand courts, on the whole, aren't in that zone of supervising and trying to make sure that people behave in in that kind of very close, regulated sense. Mm. They tend to make declarations saying, you're misbehaving, stop. Don't start again until you behave properly. This case is potentially involving the court in a, in a much more regulatory kind of approach to Fonterra and the other defendants. The argument is that Parliament, through its the Climate Change Response Act and its other mechanisms, yeah. has set up a regime by which these large companies will, over time, appropriately reduce their emissions. 
while still being able to contribute to the economy, that it's a, it's a balance. So, I mean, how long until we get a steer on whether or not this case can proceed? Like, when, when would you expect the Supreme Court to issue a, a ruling? Six months. That's, six months? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? Yeah. Well, that is their, that's their, that's their timeline, six months, yep. Yeah. So, Why does it take so, six months? Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, it's crazy, right? Because you know how I was saying, if we will go back to trial, right? And then there'll be discovery and then they'll fight over discovery. There'll be judgments there. And then once it's gone to them, then they'll appeal that. So it, it is a long, yeah, it's a long process. Oh, my God. Yeah. I think what's driving a lot of the judicial reviews that are being taken in this case is this basic feeling that Parliament just isn't doing its job. Mm-hmm. And one way of thinking about the role of common law courts is that they don't, often provide the ultimate solution, but they're quite good at finding the facts of stuff. And sometimes that can be very useful. So the the example which I would use from in the United States is both the tobacco litigation and the asbestos litigation, which were incredibly valuable, not because they solved the problem of how you deal with people who are affected by asbestos diseases or stopping smoking. What they did was they told us what the companies knew and did not know they force a kind of action. There's a pinch point created by a court case. And I think that's what people are trying to do in this case. I don't think the plaintiffs are at all really trying to suggest that the court can solve all these issues. What they want the court to do really is to put up a red flag and saying, this is enough. We need as a common law court now to go and find out what's happening. What can, to use the example in this morning's court, what would it cost Fonterra to turn its boilers off or to change its boilers to make them more efficient or mm. less, less giving rise to emissions? In the common law court, you have to give that information in a way you don't have to give it in other fora. So that's what's going on. I think people are trying to use the courts as a way of goading parliament into action. So each time there's a court judgment, it might force the parliament to do just a little bit more. And there was this idea in the court today that there's, New Zealand by itself can't do anything but maybe... The judges can be part of, an, of a wave of judges. Mm-hmm. And there's judgments in the Netherlands and in Germany where judges have also extended the law to enable these cases to go to trial. It's more symbolic is the wrong word because it underplays what's really going on. But I think courts do have a role in our system of saying when things are going wrong and when things need to be fixed. And I think the court, the Supreme Court, looks very apprised of that. They're just sort of querulous what is it that we can do here that would be a meaningful intervention? That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders and produced by Mark Jennings and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Victoria Young and Jeff McClay. Matewa.